Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, my friends out there in Blog Talk Radio land. want to welcome you and thank you back. I see that with the weather starting to change, our listeners have, have constantly grown, but it's picking up again. I guess people are coming out of that winter, their winter cave or the cove and getting back in the swing of things. So I appreciate that. want to welcome all of you guys, and I always like to take time out to really appreciate and acknowledge and thank our loyal listeners. I'm talking about the people who have been with us for over 10 years as we're going into our 11th year on the air. So I thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome you to another edition of Off the Shelf Radio for this Saturday, March 15th, and the year 2014. And again, thank you for being here with us. For those of you, our loyal listeners know who I am, but for those of you, you might have just been thinking, what am I going to do this Saturday morning? Thanks to the Internet, you could be doing your housework or have your speaker on, or you could have dialed into today's show or go into the chat room. I want to introduce myself to you for those saying, who in the world is this lady talking? I'm your host, Denise Turney, and as I always say, I am coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. And I thank you again for your support. I, I can't. I, I was telling our last show, we've had guests on who have gone on international platforms, large platforms, and one who has actually interviewed the president. But I, I, we have had some phenomenal guests on our show that have really, really taken off. And they share the tips and the advice they share as they respond to the questions that I ask. It's just... I, I wonder how much somebody would have to pay if you got all the tips and advice that have been shared on Off the Shelf over the years, if you had to package it or pay for it, and it's all free. So I always encourage people, tell your friends, tell your relatives, tell your colleagues, everybody you know, particularly people who are interested in the literary field, to tune in to Off the Shelf on Saturday mornings at 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or New York City time for those who tune in from other countries. I don't know what the guests are going to share, but I can tell you we've had some phenomenal guests, and they all, every last one of them, always share something valuable and important. And I, ahead of time, I don't know what they're going to say, so tune in to Off the Shelf. You don't want to miss out. 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the mornings. And I also encourage you, if you love mystery and if, if you especially value relationships, it could be romantic relationships, friendships, pick up a copy of Love Pull Over Me. There is high speed entertainment in it, but this the development of a father-son relationship, I think you will find extremely moving. And the friendship uh, that these two guys share, these four guys share, and the relationship between a man and a woman in Love Pull Over Me. You can get it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it at uh, uh, iTunes. You can get it or uh, ebook it. You can get it at Amazon.com. Anywhere online or offline, this book is available because it is carried by the largest book distributors in the world. And, again, that's Love Pull Over Me, Love Pull Over Me. So go out and get a copy. And, by the way, that is my latest book, Love Pull Over Me by Denise Attorney. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk for it. Uh, thank you and thank you so much for your support. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. I'm always excited, as you all are, to hear what our guests have to share. And our special guest today is Parker J. Cole. Now, Parker is a writer. She's also a radio host, and she is the author of the books Dark Cherub, Coconut, I, I, I got a feeling, am I going to say this right? Coconut Snooman, or it sounds like Tsunami, tsunami Rims <laughs> of Our Own, and Many Strange Women, which is her, her latest is Many Strange Women. Her first book, Dark Cherub, won Best of Spring Reading for 2013 from the E-Media Campaigns. And you can learn more about Parker and her new book, Many Strange Women by visiting her online. You can visit her, thanks to the Internet, online even now as you listen to her interview today. And her website is parkerjco.com. So with HTTP, the colon, forward slash, or you can just put in parkerjco.com, P-A-R-K-E-R, 
JCOLE.com, ParkerJCole.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Parker. Thank you so much for having me here, Denise. It's great to be here. And looking forward to, 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 to today's show. Excited about the um, for Off the Shelf listeners, Parker's work. I think is a little, is unique. And I love that. I I love that. And so she's going to dive into her books, and so you, our listeners, can learn more about them, and hopefully go out and get a copy of one or more of her books. And again, her latest is Many Strange Women. Now, I like to give our listeners a little backstory on the guest who come on the show, they can see a little bit of their pathing and development. So to give our listeners some backstory on you, Parker, can you tell us where you grew up and what your early childhood years were like? I grew up here in the lovely city of Detroit, Michigan, and I, um, my childhood was just um, it was pretty good. I um, Probably in my middle school years I was bullied, so I really do have an affinity for children who are bullied um, nowadays. But the bullying I dealt with is nothing compared to the bullying that our kids deal with today. It's um it's really sad. Um, but I did have a great childhood. My mother, my father's a minister. My mom is a, a teacher, and I have a twin sister, an older sister, and I have two brothers. And uh, um, my childhood was very happy. I had a happy childhood. Um, that's all I can really think of. Um, I mean, of course, I had crazy parents, you know, but I think everyone has crazy parents. And uh, now that they're grandparents with my uh, my brother's uh, son that they're raising, uh, they turn to people that you don't rec- recognize from your childhood. Yeah. Oh. oh, my God. <laughs> the aliens take over their bodies. Because when I was growing up, I would have got stopped on the bottom for that. But now yeah. my, my nephew can get away with anything. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> but grandparents that are is to watch that in your that and I every I, everybody I know says that happens, and I don't know if they just learn as they get older. Maybe when they're raising their kids, they're not so sure it'll turn out right. When they then they know it's going to work out anyway. So there's no reason to take that approach. A twin sister, oh my goodness! I think you're the yeah, first guest twin. on our show who is a twin. Oh, okay. Well, my twin sister, she's also a writer. She writes uh, fantasy. Um, and uh, she's working on her her first debut novel now, and uh, she's um, she is my biggest supporter, and we are like night and day. Um, really, we're not yeah, we're not identical by any means, but uh, we do have that twin bond that you hear people talking about. Where especially when we were younger, I could look at her and know her thoughts. So because we weren't identical, and some people say identical twins can't read each other's minds, but um, being fraternal, I couldn't read her mind, but I could read her face. Like instantly, wow. I could read her face and she could read mine. And so we oftentimes, she knew what I was thinking, I knew what she was thinking, and we still very much to this day have a very close bond with each other. Isn't that something? Now, now mm-hmm. can you tell us, I find that fascinating, but can you tell us when you were a kid, these are two questions I ask all of our guests, what did you dream of becoming when you were a child, when you grew up? What did you say, this is what I want to be? I can honestly say since I was a child, I always wanted to be a writer. That was always in my blood. Um, it was always part of my everything. I've always wanted to be a writer. That's interesting. A lot of guests we've had on now, a few, but very few writers have said that. A lot of them started off in a whole nother avenue, and then something kind of turned them back. They'll say they might have wanted to be something else, but they love to write. But there was mm-hmm. something else they wanted to do, but they loved to write, and then something brought them back to the writing. But you say you always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. Um, and that, the, the industry has definitely changed tremendously, I know, since oh, I yeah. started out. As a, it's just a oh, totally, yeah. totally different industry. Was there, was there a single event when you look back that happened to let you know you were a novelist? And if so, can you share that event with us? I think um, when I started to write stories, when I was in my sixth grade class, um, my teacher used to give us assignments where we had to use the spelling words to put in a story. And I rolled to the challenge, and I knew then when people, when I read my stories, the kids generally liked them. They may have teased me about them, but they liked them. And you can tell because you wouldn't you would keep hearing it. And my teacher really encouraged it, and she thought it had great potential. And I always... Um, I always thank her because she opened up the pathway to that. And teachers are just so important to uh, kids who have the talent to encourage them. Not that my parents didn't encourage me because they did, but someone outside of your parents 
who you can trust, but who also has an objective viewpoint, who can say, you know what, you can really turn this into something more than um, a hobby. You can really turn this into a career if you want to. And so I uh, really give my um, my um, hats off to my teacher who did that for me when I was in fifth grade. That's when I knew it was in me. And your teacher told you that you could turn it into? Well, your teacher told me that is not in that many words, but she encouraged it. You know, I was the only one who oh. was consistently bringing the homework. That was the one homework assignment I loved to do. And a lot of okay. the kids, they would go, you know, they would talk smack or whatever, but uh, I was always the one who constantly did my homework. Even a bad story was good. That's, you okay. Know, so I knew, now, that's how I knew. Okay, that's interesting. That's inter- I think we've had a few people come on, too, and say that uh, something a teacher, and some said that a Something a teacher said turned them away from writing for years. So, you, like you said, mm-hmm. teachers are can have a lot of impact. Any adult, anybody in that type of position that a child will look up to, I think, has a lot of influence. Can you give us the premise behind Dark Cherub? Is that your first novel? And can you give? Yeah, us that was my first novel. Okay. Yeah, that one uh, is uh, is Christian horror, and people when I told that to someone else, they said Christian horror. <laughs> Like, she had this idea of a bunch of Christians <laughs> killing people, you know. I was like, no, it's not that. But basically, a horror, as you know, is a form of a genre of speculative fiction. And so, uh, I grew up reading Stephen King, Bing Coons, um, John Saul. This is really dark people who like to write dark things. And so then, um, when I did Dark Cherub, it took about ten years to get that done and get that written. Wow! But I, um, yeah, and that's something that's that's part of my writing journey. Um, so it took about 10 years, and when I did that, uh, it's basically a story about two young girls, and they make these decisions, and these decisions have huge impacts on their lives because there's a dark entity uh, killing women, and all over hmm. there is no um, no um, category that they're killing all these that's killing these women, and they're trying to find out. And when the women are found, they're covered with these quarter-sized black splotches on their faces. And no one knows mm-hmm. what the link is. And so the reason why these women are being killed is linked to these decisions these two girls make, and it follows mm. their story. So uh, that's why I call it Dark Cherub. It's kind of controversial um, to those who want to read it, but it is controversial. I won't give away what the controversy is because I like people to find out for themselves. Right. <laughs> um, but um, it was my first book. It was something I started writing when I was actually 18 years old. I started writing when I was 18 oh, years old. Oh, my goodness. And it took so long because it didn't start off like it did. But um, oh, you kept you kept changing it. Yeah, I kept changing it. And then uh, I think I had to mature a little bit more before I can reflect that in my writing because I was eighteen when I started it. And okay. how much of a, a life experience do you have at eighteen? You think you may have a yeah. lot. Well, some people may have more than me, obviously, but I didn't think I had enough life experience. But um, it is what it is right now, and I'm I'm, I'm proud of the. Um, where it came, what the product looks like now, and I'm just glad people have read and they like it. Yeah, you know what? Like I said, it's unique. It's, and I was listening to somebody. Uh, my son has something on uh, the, uh, the a group of guys who actually review and critique uh, music uh, CDs, and he said really to be a talented uh, lyricist, you really there's nothing new. You almost that you can say you saying mm-hmm. something in a different way that's so unique. It's it almost sounds new because of the yeah. angle you take or the approach you take, and it seems like you are that type of writer. Now you said there's a there's a dark entity that's that's is this is this dark entity? Would it have showed up if these girls hadn't made this the, the decisions that they did? It would have been stalled until the because I did like a. It's not a prophecy, and I hate using prophecies in, in stories because so many people do prophecies. But mm-hmm. um, because she did it, uh, it would have still been there, but it would not have been able to act if she did not make the decision that she made. Wow. So it still would have uh, killed the women. They were still being killed anyway. But the next stage of this dark entity's plan was set when she made that decision. Oh, Interesting. Do mm-hmm. do the can you give us some tell us a little bit about the main characters in the book and describe them for our off the shelf listeners who are who sure. give us their names and give us a little bit of a description on these main characters. 
Well, my first, the main character, the first main character, her name is Angela, and she's about uh, 16, 15, rather, when she's, um, when she, when you get the book. And she's a regular 15-year-old, and she has, she likes this guy, and the book kind of starts off with her in the car with this guy, and they're doing their thing or whatever. And uh, it's not graphic, though. I don't do anything like that. But they're doing their thing. And then it follows her best friend named Shalanda. And Shalanda, um, she's a Christian girl, and she's very strict in her um, beliefs, and she's her best friend, and they talk. And um, uh, Shalanda's strong in her faith, whereas um, Angela isn't necessarily so strong. She knows what she's supposed to do, but she doesn't do it um, because she doesn't Mm -hmm. want to. Um, And so um, when she's... When she looks out after her and her, um, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm trying to think of the guy's name. I, you would think I would know. Oh my gosh! But <laughs> her, um, her boyfriend uh-huh. look and they see this woman disappear. They just see her disappear in front of their eyes, and that just freaks them out. And then they realize that the person who disappeared was the high school principal. And so they were the ones that saw her high school principal disappear. And when they see that, she wants to say something. He's like, don't say a word. And she starts to realize the kind of guy that she's with and all these other decisions come to mind. And so that's where it starts off. But her best friend is the one who gives, like, wise counsel. But her best friend also has a, a gentleman that's, that's obsessed with her, and his mm. name is Jason. And Jason and um, Angela's boyfriend are very good friends, and Jason is obsessed with Shalanda to the point where it's like a dark, unholy obsession with her. And so he he plots to do some harm to her, and Derek agrees to help him do harm to her. Wow. So those are you know, four uh, major characters. And then um, there's like a five-year break, and then they, they're adults now. And then what happens at that, so... I was going to ask you if it was a young adult, being that they started off as teenagers, and I like that you did that. You give the reader, again, a little bit of background on these characters before you really dive into the heart of the story. Do you think, I want to ask you what inspired you to write Dark Cherub, and then I want to ask you another question after that. Well, what inspired me to write it was, uh, it's actually my one character based off a friend of mine, and uh, I was 18, that was when the book, when I wrote it, and um, based off something that she did, and I was really shocked by what she had did. And I can't say what it did because, again, it's in part of the story. But okay. um, I was really shocked by what she did, and so I wrote this story in reaction to what she did. And that's why I think a lot of things had to change before I actually published it because I was much more critical than I am now, people. So especially since I've fallen three or four hundred times since then. <laughs> so oh yeah. So critical, people. Um, oh. But uh, and I um, I told her that uh, when I told her about the book, uh, ten years later we had connected again, and I told her about the book, and she read it and she really enjoyed it, and um, she knows it's about her. But uh, not about her, maybe not about but, her, but yeah, she knows right. that I based it off her decision. And that's where the idea of the story came from. And she, she oh. thoroughly enjoyed it. And she enjoyed it. I knew that she was okay with what I had written. So, <laughs> You know what's so, funny? When we're young, not mm-hmm. maybe not all of us, but I did the same thing. You, we mm-hmm. haven't, I hadn't made enough mistakes to know. Just, you just, I'm just like everybody else. And to have mm-hmm. more patience. And definitely always forgiveness when I consider my own mistakes and yeah. then when somebody else makes a mistake. Really not different. The mistakes we make are different, but as I age, I'm grateful that I'm getting that lesson. I'm very yeah. grateful for that. Do you think, Parker, mm-hmm. uh, I know this is a a novel, Dark Cherub, and that you – it's based – it was inspired by something a few, saw a friend of yours do. But do you think that really, uh, and it seems like it's a little bit of sci-fi-ness to me in the story, but do you think that our past poor decisions that we make as what happens to these characters, do you think they do go on to have a great influence over over us in our futures? I think so. I think so. Maybe they don't have a huge impact, but... I think past decisions help us to pave the road for the future. Um, sometimes the mistakes we made, we can't get rid of them. And then sometimes the mistakes we made, we just learn from them. Um, and what I mean by can't get rid of them, there are some consequences to some of the actions that we do that really do affect our future paths for later. 
I'm trying to think of one. Like for for myself, one time, and it's it's not as it's not a bad decision. It was a stupid decision, not necessarily a bad one. A friend of mine, um, his um, the mother of his child had died, and uh, this was a couple years ago. The mother of his child had died, and I did not go to the funeral. And ah. I could have did excuses for that. And he saw me the next day when I went to work. He saw me. He was like, "Why weren't you there?" And it changed our whole relationship. To the point yeah. where he was like, I don't want to hear any excuses. Why weren't you wow. there? You knew her. I, here's the thing. I only met her once. But in his mind, I should have been there. And I didn't right. go. And I will never forget how it changed the whole relationship. And I don't know if he ever forgave me for that. I don't know if he still does because I haven't talked to him since then. And um, it bothered me off and on because I feel like I should have went. And I should not have let anything not go. And I should have went. So, it impacts my future decisions that if someone, no matter yeah, I see what you're saying. Just does go show that support because it's so needed. Um, wow. And I, I really, you know, I used to make him laugh a lot, and that's probably why he really wanted me there. I used to make him mm-hmm. laugh a lot, and um, if I had if I had just known that, I would have gone. But yeah. If I knew my relationship changed, so. Right, and then also I've learned too that. We're each responsible for what we think, perceive, believe, and feel. So still, it's, mm-hmm. I would say what he feels and thinks is on him because mm-hmm. we're not responsible. We cannot control what other people think and feel. But I see what you're saying. You don't want to even run the risk of it of that. Rela- yeah, there are decisions yeah. we can make. I can think of relationships I went into where I'm like something that <laughs> it, it, it never – and I'm sure other people can where you think, yeah, you're out of it, but it's some effect is still there, and it can impact a future choice that you make. And that's a, that's yeah. an interesting piece of dark chess yeah. that I think anybody mm-hmm. can relate to. Anybody can relate to that piece of it mm-hmm. in the dark chair. Now, is there a, a, a single message that you want readers to take away from reading dark chair? I think it's that nothing you do is unforgivable. Um, mm. Nothing that you do is unforgivable. And people, there are people who hold grudges and hold um, hatred for other people for something that happened before. But I think unforgiveness is, has something to do with pride. How dare you mm. hurt me? How dare you ah. look at me? In? And it has something to do with pride as if we're better than someone else. How could you do this to me? And then sometimes we have to learn to forgive ourselves. Because sometimes the worst, the hardest person to forgive is yourself, especially when yes. you're in the seat and you know you've done something wrong, like I did. And I, right. I tried not to think about when I didn't go to his uh, his, um, his his the funeral. There's so often I go, why didn't you go? I mean, what what was so important that you did not go? Cause I can't remember now, but had I went, it w- I would have remembered going. So yeah, um, and so I think about that off and on. And but then, sometimes, but then if you no, go ahead. Oh please, please! If you don't, if you go in the future, then I, I would say the slate's clean. <laughs> it's like the teacher asks you, "What's one plus one?" You say three, and then you learn that it's two, and you say two. So why would you go back and keep saying? But I, once I said it was three, who cares? Yeah. You got it. <laughs> yeah, but you know that's the, that's the that's the thing. Forgiving yourself is one of the hardest right. things to do. Yeah. Especially because you can't you can't blame anyone else. <laughs> yeah, you can't pass the buck. It's just you. Right. You're the one who's wrong. Especially righteous anger, righteous anger at uh, when someone's angry at you and you know you did something wrong. And righteous anger is hard to fight against. So. Uh, can you tell us about some of the reader feedback? This is what I love about the, the interviews we do on Off the Shelf. Not because they're on this show, but I mm-hmm. learn more. I research for the interviews. Before I do them for our listeners, I mean, I take time and research. I don't just pop up with questions. But I learn so much, and the books become more interesting to me when I hear the authors start to talk about them. Can you tell us about some of the feedback you've gotten from readers about Dark Cherub? With Dark Cherub, uh, it was my first, and I didn't know a lot about publishing when I first published it. So it was really exciting to get a review. <laughs> From someone you didn't know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, someone didn't know I read this book. This is okay. awesome. But, uh, and they enjoyed it. And someone who never read your writing, and they really enjoyed it. One guy, he said, I read that book in one day. Wow. <laughs> so 
I said, is that a good thing? He was like, that book gripped me, and he couldn't yes. put it down. Uh, wow. Another young lady, because um, the one character, her, her name is uh, Shalanda, named after someone I know. Um, her name was Shalanda. And I told her, I just, I just told her as a matter of fact, I didn't know she would buy the book that hour. And so she bought the wow. book and she read it. She said, I read that book in probably probably four hours. You know, that's how wow. she flew through it. And that's the nice thing they say. It's a fast read. It keeps you um, keeps you interested, keeps you going. Um, and even people who are like, and it is faith-based, yes, but even people who are not necessarily interested in faith, they still enjoy the book too, which is a really nice uh, nice surprise there. I thought they were, oh, gosh, who wants to hear about this stuff? But no, people who were not faith-based and not into, um, you know, things like that nature, mm-hmm. they still enjoy the book, too, which is good for me. So I said, okay, so at least I know I could write a story. <laughs> now, you know what? It does, when you talk about Dark Chip and mm-hmm. the title, it doesn't lend itself at first glance that this is a, a faith-based book. How, mm-hmm. where does the faith for people that that's important to them, where does the mm-hmm. faith or the inspiration come into the story? I don't want you to give the story away, but how would somebody – pick that up out of dark chair actually most of it comes toward uh toward the end when we start talking about forgiveness and forgiving yourself um when this dark entity's plan starts to come into fruition and you start to realize you can't fight this entity with guns you can't fight in the physical realm you've got to use more than that and you have to use something stronger than yourself and that's when the kind of faith stuff I think about. And then, like, my character, Shalanda, she's very um, strong in her faith, even after she has some dark things happen to her. She's very strong in her faith. And so throughout it all, you see it. Um, you see it through there. But um, okay. that's very than that. When did Dark Cherub come out? When was it published and released? And how much well, time, you said, it took you 10 years, I don't want to 18, it took you 10 years. When did it come out? And how much time passed, Parker, before you sat down and wrote Many Strange Women? Okay. Well, uh, Dark Chair, the first time I published it, I used Lulu.com, the very first time I published it. And I published it back in um, 2011. Then um, I got a call from a Vanity Press, and they did their spiel. And my husband, he made a gift of it for me. This was my birthday gift. He made me, you know, publish it again. And they said, oh, we'll do this and we'll do that, blah, blah, blah. And I ended up republishing it again with the Vanity Press back in 2012. So this would be like the second published um, printing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other question you asked now? Uh, when, and how many years passed oh. before, okay. you know, after you released Dark Chair, before you wrote Many Strange Women's? Sins of the Many Strange Women. With Many Strange Women, uh, I started working on that probably 2012. After I finished uh, publishing Dark Trevor, I started working on it about 2012. And uh, that was a romance because after I got out of horror, I wanted to get into romance because I I liked romance. Just just in general, I liked romance. And so um, I got into that. And the story idea came, but it actually wasn't Many Strange Women. It was actually the second book in the series, and I'm finishing now, that I started working on. And then literally about two months into this uh, work in progress, uh, my two characters, Solomon and Celeste, tapped me on the shoulder. And they mm. said, I want our story. And Celeste is the oldest sister. She said, I want my story first. And I, I started to see their story. And I said, okay, we'll write you guys first. So it took about 18 months for the Many Strange Women only because at the time I didn't have a clear direction of what I was going to do. I didn't know how yeah. I was going to do it, but it just took 18 months. But I was by that time I had started to network with other authors. I had started to network, um, get more discipline in my, in my profession. And then I started to really say, how serious do you want to take this? If you're going to make this mm. a career, how serious do you want to do it? And so that's when I became more disciplined. And then networking with other authors was a huge help. I mean, wow, help. I've heard because, people say that in the, in the Go ahead. No, because they help you learn to be disciplined. Some writers, yeah. I didn't even know how to, because I used to just write what they call seat of your pants or being a pantser, where you just write on the flow, wherever the creative flow is coming, that's when you write. But plotting helps you know where you're going to go, and I hadn't did that before. With Dark Cherub, it was just writing on the seat of my pants, you know, changing this, oh, this sounds cruddy or this sounds great, whatever. But when you plot, um, it helps you know where you're going to go. But I don't like to plot all of it, all my books. I want to plot 
let's say after two chapters because I still want to let the creative juices flow. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with the plan, and then I started to see how other writers wrote. Um, there's one writer, she's um, she's blind, and listen, the way she writes, Unless she knew that, unless she knew she was blind, you didn't, you wouldn't know that. But the way she described things, I took something from her. I was like, oh, she's using more of a texture and different types of ways to describe things. So I really ah, like that. Interesting. So, she's blind, so she will obviously see the world differently. Yeah, but to feel, touch, and feel. That's interesting. I, that's an interesting approach. See, every time somebody shares something that you never heard of before, very interesting. See, that's how she lives her life, probably more through touch and sound. So her writing that's going to come through, very interesting. I want to talk about many strange women. Can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where Solomon Green, uh, where Solomon grew up, and how did he get to be the man he is at the start of the book? Well, Solomon grew up, he is actually the son of uh, cult leaders, and his mom and dad are cult leaders, and the name of their cult organization is the Church of the cult, True Virgin like of the Washington. C-U-L-T? C-U-L-T. Oh, <laughs> very interesting. And, yeah, and um, they're, he's very wealthy, he comes from very wealthy because of this cult. They, um, you know, most cults take care of a lot of the finances, and they take all the members' money and stuff, so they're very wealthy. And uh, he grew up in Ohio. <clears throat> sorry, he grew up in, no, I'm sorry, not Ohio. He grew up in uh, Michigan, in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And uh, his his parents are cult leaders. And he became the way he are because his parents were very distant from him because they were so involved in the organization. But his parents never made him part of that organization. It was their religion, as you will, if you will. That okay. was their religion. And so they didn't make him be part of it. So he kind of grew up distant from his parents. And then he grew up with money, so he always had a lot of money, so he didn't really have to work or do anything like that. And um, by the time you meet him in the book, he's a man with a very scattered path, and he's trying to find himself again. He's trying to find his soul again because he knows he doesn't have one. And the one thing he wants to do, to do that, he believes he has to have a specific type of wife. So he makes his deal with God about a specific type of wife that he wants. Why does he think that? Does he... Now, okay, sins of the flesh, many strange women. It's when you say checkered past. Has he been with a lot of women, like a rock star, a professional athlete? He's just bad. Women are definitely in his past. Women are definitely in his past because he likes women. And in the in the um, book, you find that out um, the different relationships that he's had, and he likes women. Um, he's like a he's like a womanizer. All he wants to do is lay down with women. That's all he wants to do is just get as much as he can to that. But then when is this it, and, and I'm sorry, when this um, event happens in the story that, that's revealed, um, that's when he wants to stop doing that. Is that why his name is Solomon? <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Solomon came from, you know, from the, uh, it did come from is the Bible. Is that why his, his name first... is Solomon? Because oh, <laughs> Solomon had a thousand many? women. Okay, <laughs> okay, that makes, that makes sense. Why, why does he think, this is something even when I was researching it, that just struck me as, it just jumped out at me, and it made me curious to know the answer. Why does he think he's been with all these women? Why does he think a certain type of woman, woman is going to change him? Because I really believe it's a book, but change is from mm-hmm. the inside. It's not from the outside. But why does he right. think a certain type, and what type of woman does he think mm-hmm. it's going to take to change him? Well, what the gave reason him this why idea? Yeah, well, the reason is that he has always been with very attractive women, and he knows how to get them, and he knows what he wants from them. And so by the time you meet him in the story, he wants an ugly woman as his wife. He does not want to be attracted to her. (laughs) He does not want to be attracted to his wife because he's he's always attracted to beautiful women. Beautiful women are his Achilles heel, and he wants an ugly wife because – that's what he wants. That's what he feels will help him escape from his past. Okay. Interesting. She can be anything else. She just has to be unattractive to him. So he thinks yeah. that's the problem, that when he's physically mm-hmm. attracted to a woman, that's his whole, man, this guy's probably in for a lot of lessons. Now, can you tell us about 
Celeste Martin. What is what mm-hmm. is her family like, and what does Celeste? What does she want to get out of life? Well, Celeste, uh, she grew up in Ohio, and um, she has a sister named Leah. And Celeste is an eccentric character. She's very reserved. Her nickname is Icy, and she's very reserved. Um, She wears costume clothes, like from the 1800s to 1500s. She enjoys wearing that, and that's all she wears. Celeste believes she is hideous. She believes she's an ugly female, and she knows that. So what she does to kind of compensate for her is to wear these clothes because the clothes are pretty even if she isn't. And she's also jealous of her sister, Leah. She's very jealous of her sister, Leah, because Leah is the very beautiful and she's always had men chasing after her, and boys want to hit on her when they were kids. And she is always in her younger sister's shadow. So what she wants out of life is what happens, though, is that she falls in love with her sister's boyfriend. But mm. when he proposes to her sister's boyfriend, she can't handle it. And she's like, I don't want to live the rest of my life ugly, never having anyone. And I see the man who, the man of my dreams married to my sister, which wow. kind of cuts him. And the customer, yeah. and so when she meets Solomon, when they meet, she's not surprised by anything that he says. And so when he brings this arrangement to her, she's like, "Sure, whatever." <laughs> Why not thinking? Not thinking. She so she's he's feeling desperate. He he doesn't like mm-hmm. what he's become. He doesn't think mm-hmm. he has the power within himself to change. So a woman's mm-hmm. gotta once again. He looks like this guy is looking to a woman to fix him from the whole mm-hmm. start of it. And then she's yeah. probably given up on her life, it sounds like. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but she's extremely talented. She's extremely talented. And this is actually real Celeste because I admire people who can knit, sew, crochet, loom, uh, spin spin needles, um, weaving, quilting. I, I admire those type of people because they're very talented. And so in Celeste, I kind of get my admiration for those type of people because that's what she does. She makes her own clothes. She knits. She crochets. And she does these videos on YouTube. And so she has a following of people who follow her based off her talents. So she's a very talented woman with a needle, and she knows how to do various different things. And so she makes her own outfits, and she goes to balls and fairs with these outfits because some people who are into amateur costume design, that's what they do. They they have balls, and they show off their uh, costumes. Um, and she, this is what she lives in because she has her own fantasy world that she lives in. Since she's not beautiful, she lives in a fantasy where she dresses up mm. to be beautiful because she doesn't believe is, she is. Is Solomon, okay, his parents are cult leaders. He's grown up. He wasn't involved in that. Did he go, did he develop any beliefs? I mean, we all do, but I don't know if he developed Mm -hmm. any religious beliefs. Is he completely and utterly unaware of his own inner power, completely unaware of his power to choose his power, to use his thoughts to to make changes? Is he completely and utterly unaware of that? I think it's not whether or not he's unaware of that. It's where he's looking for help. He's looking for outside help. So he doesn't have any faith in himself by by any means that he can change. So that's why he makes this deal. He's like, okay, I can't do it, so I need some help. Give me an ugly wife, and we'll we'll work it. That's basically what he's basically saying. So he's he's thinking that having an ugly wife will make these changes, and then he like he wants to escape from this past his. And so that's what he's um doing. So, okay. There's, there's uh, something Parker's not telling us. I know she can't t- get a story away, mm-hmm. but there's something that happened. I can tell that, uh, and that's good, so people can go out and get many strange women. That's good. There's, <laughs> but there's a reason I feel like he's he's making this choice. He's feeling desperate. Mm-hmm. How, other than the spinning and the clothes she wears, uh-huh. the clothes are beautiful. She thinks she's ugly. The clothes help her. To feel like mm-hmm. there is something beautiful, at least that she has on, if it's just the clothes. And uh, and and what other ways, Parker, is Celeste different, other than her appearance and mm-hmm. the fact she wears these costumes? And what other ways is she different from the other women that Solomon's mm-hmm. been with? Well, the first thing she doesn't want him. She is not interested oh. in him at all. <laughs> oh, okay. She doesn't want him. Because, I mean, her in, in the story, there's a best friend named Gonzo, her best friend. You find out in the story, kind of early, so I'm not giving away anything. Um, you, you find out that they both had the same best friend. That's what their connection was, this friend named Gonzo. And he used to visit her. She used to go to, um, 
he used to visit his grandparents, that's how they became friends, and then he was always Solomon's friend. And so um, you find out that um, she's, she, he, I'm sorry, you find out that Gaza and her are very good friends, and Solomon's shocked to find this out, too. He didn't know they knew the same person. Um, oh. And since so she doesn't want Solomon, and she kind of always, when she meets Gonzo, because it's been seven years since she has seen him, when she meets, she's like, oh, my gosh, you're here, and she's talking to him, and she seems to prefer Gonzo to Solomon, which kind of gets him like, okay, what's going on? And what, you know, right. He wanted this unattractive wife, and she's shown all this interest in his best friend, and he found out that was her best friend, too. What's going on here? So that's one of the things that, uh, that's kind of interesting in the book. Oh, okay. Every other woman wanted him, but the woman who he probably would think would want him the most, she's like, beat it. <laughs> no, she doesn't. She's not remotely interested. <laughs> it's very... I like the way you tackle your stories. And I want to let our off-the-shelf listeners know who might have just tuned in. We're, our special guest today is Parker J. Cole, and she's a writer and a radio show host. And she's the author of the books Dark Chair, Coconut to Snami. We're not going to get to all her books, but I do want to cover at least two or three of them today. Realms of Our Own and Many Strange Women, and we're currently talking about Many Strange Women. Her first book, Dark Chair, won Best of Spring Reading for 2013 from e-media campaigns and you can go over to her website learn more about her books and her and her website is parkerjcole.com and it's p-a-r-k-e-r-j-c-o-l-e.com again that's p-a-r-k-e-r-j-c-o-l-e.com parkerjcole.com spelled just the way it sounds and we were talking about again many strange women uh the main character celeste Martin and uh, Solomon Solomon Green in, in the mm-hmm. book. And I wanted to ask you, um, um, can you tell our listeners this pact? This pact was, if you can give a little bit more information in this yeah. pact, is a very unique pact that these two make. And they seem to make it like it didn't have no consequences. Like, okay, yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, Ellen, one that. more question. How yeah, old sure. are they? How old are they? Um, yeah, Celeste is 27. Solomon is 31. Okay. Yeah, okay. Solomon is 31. Can you tell us a little bit more about the pact that they've entered into? Well, the pact was that Solomon wants to marry an unattractive woman, and um, when he approaches Celeste, she agrees to be his, uh, his ugly wife because she knows that. <laughs> so that's the fact. It would be a marriage of convenience, so they wouldn't have any intimacy between them. And so, ah. yeah. There will be no intimacy between them. They just wants to, you know, she wants his name and he wants her protection. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. What did she hope to get? Oh, she wanted his name. Okay. Yeah, because she, she wants to him. stay away from the fact that she's a, her sister is marrying a man that she loves. She wants to stay away from oh. that. And ah. that's why she wants his name. So they all married for the wrong reasons, basically. <laughs> Wow. Oh, my goodness. Now, but I like that they're right up front about it. I think a lot of times people get married, and we have these hidden agendas we might not even be aware of. And then 10, 20 years into the relationship, we're like, oh, my God, I didn't marry you for the reasons I thought I did. <laughs> no, really. Are you aware this is – where did you get this idea? Are you aware of any real-life pacts that couples have made that are similar to Solomon and Celeste? Well, one of the, uh, not not similar to Solomon and Celeste, no, because I don't think most women will marry a man who thinks that she's hideous. But um, I think it came from the fact that people marry not necessarily for love. People marry for position. They marry for comfort, security. They marry for many different reasons. Um, it's not always because I love you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they marry for different reasons. And I wanted to explore this idea of can't marry without love. And some people marry, especially like back in the um, – in England and in Europe, you have people who got married because the kings, they married the daughters or the prince or uh, the duke and whoever married this person because of familial obligations. They didn't marry because mm-hmm. they loved this person. They had to. And um, marriages I love have always fascinated me in a way because like wow. arranged marriages, um, like in some parts of the Middle East and in India, other parts, they don't necessarily marry for love. They have arranged marriages. Now that is changing because of Western right. influence. But um, that was fascinating me how you can marry someone that you don't love and then you honor and protect someone that you really don't know. Um, a friend of mine, um, he he got married to 
I'm sorry, not not him. His cousin, when she got married, she had only known her groom for four months, and it was a match made completely by her family. Um, uh. It was just interesting. I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine doing that. So that always kind of fascinated me, which is where the basis of their marriage comes from. It has no uh, emotion in it, and they all have they have their own agendas. They're pretty much upfront about that, and that's it. Now we know that that changes. I know from our research, their their pact kind of doesn't hold. Um, yeah. It changes, and you you would think mm-hmm. that over time, people being together, that things would change. But yeah, mm-hmm. you know what? I was uh, this was a couple of years ago. I was doing mm-hmm. some research, and I they said people marrying for love is really relatively new. It's not. Yeah. It, it, it's not it, it, historically. It's not the reason people got married, you know. And a lot of even in in the United States, years ago, you married so you could have a family. It wasn't so much you just thought this man would be a good provider. This woman looks like she could bear healthy children, and yep. boom, you you got. It wasn't. It wasn't. This notion of marrying for love is relatively new. It's yeah. relatively new, and people stay together for the for the security, the financial reasons, so that mm-hmm. kids can grow up with both parents. And it mm-hmm. really, it we thought I think we think it was based on love, but uh, yeah. they say it's no. Funny this is relatively new. It's funny you say that because my friend, uh, he's um he's an Indian, he's an Indian, and his his family put out a matrimonial ad in the uh, Indian newspaper or site or whatever, and I said a matrimonial ad. I had never heard of such a thing. He's like, yes, yeah, a matrimonial ad, and basically. We know when we do dating ads here, we say, you know, single white whoever or single black whoever is one of meets whoever mm-hmm. or whatever. And so his matrimony had his name, his family, his education, how much he made, uh, what wow. he was looking for, caste system, cause, you know, Indian, so Hindus, uh, caste system, um, uh, what his families were, what they did. It was like here, we're looking, and then we're looking for a bride. <laughs> wow. It was kind of like. Whoa! I mean, it, and it kind of makes sense in a way because you at least know what you're getting up front. That's <laughs> yeah, you as know like, what? And your <laughs> you and what's so interesting is a lot of those marriages do work. It, yeah, it's interesting. And then and then when people marry for love, so a lot of those don't. <laughs> it's interesting. It is. I think you took a fascinating life event that anybody could relate to, and you took an interesting approach to it. Now, one reviewer had this to say about Many Strange Women, said incredibly well-written, a unique love story, and the power of forgiveness are just two thoughts that come to mind when reading this novel. A love story that was not birthed out of fireworks and drama, but came softly over time through trial and error. Now, is that your, we, we talked about Dark Cherub, and you said forgiveness was one of the messages mm-hmm. you wanted readers to take away. Is that mm-hmm. do you find that to be a common theme? Is that is your intent to have people consider forgiveness after they finish reading Many Strange Women? Um no, not necessarily. I think the the biggest thing is that prayers can be answered and prayers will be answered just not in the way we want them to be. They're not mm. answered um you know cuz she her thing was her sister's fiance. And how does she get rid of this lust for him? And mm-hmm. his was to have escaped from his past. How does he escape from it? And so um, you pray about it, but then he doubts it because, you know, his parents are cult leaders, so he doesn't really have a strong spiritual background on any means. So mm-hmm. he's like, how do you get rid of this stain on my past? How do you get rid of it? And she's like, how do I get rid of this affection for this, this other person, especially when I both hate and love my sister? You know, she wow. loves her sister that she hates her because she's jealous of her. And um, she, and she feels like she's God's leftovers. That's how she could describe wow. her. Wow. Wow, you have some very interesting characters, some <laughs> dynamic characters. Definitely not what you call like a flat character. I mean, they're very intriguing in the, the way you you examine them and the, the, the characters that you present in your stories with the messages that you're trying to give. Now, I want to mm-hmm. talk, and we're, gonna, we're coming down like to the last eight, ten minutes yes. of the show. So the next two books I do want to cover but not don't have time to cover is in-depth, unfortunately. But can you give our listeners uh, a synopsis of Realms of Our Own? And then I want to ask you where you come up with your titles. But can you give our listeners a synopsis of Realms of Our Own? 
Well, Realms are all is an anthology. It's not yet to sell yet. It's an anthology that I did with 10 other Christian speculative fiction authors, and that is a short story. And then I submitted a short story for that anthology, and it's called God Forsaken. And um, the idea behind that was that we all submitted characters, whether human or non-human, or um, we all submitted characters, and then we used all our characters to form stories. And it can only be, I think, 15,000 words, which is a stretch for me. So I was like, oh, my gosh, mm-hmm. it's too little. But um, <laughs> I did it, and my, my short story in there is called God Forsaken. And it's speculative fiction. It's sci-fi. And I'll be out later on this year. Okay. Realms of Our Own. Okay, a compilation mm-hmm. of short stories off the shelf listeners. What inspired you to write? And then i got to ask you the next question. What inspired you to write Coconut to Snammy? Well, what inspired me to write God Forsaken was that um, – one of the things that I thought about, and people have tragedy happens in our lives, and it's like, what if no one really cared about what happened to you? What if nobody mm-hmm. cares? So that's where God, this kind of thought God for came from with all these various characters. And Coconut Tsunami is a prelude to Many Strange Women. It's a very short ah. prelude to Many Strange Women. Yeah. And basically, Coconut Tsunami, um, because one of the things that Solomon is played by, and I forgot to mention this earlier, he's played by these very vivid nightmares. And they're very interesting and intriguing and disturbing. Um, and so Coconut Tsunami is basically talking about what happened before he met Celeste. And it's a short oh. prelude to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where mm-hmm. in the world do you come up with your title? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. I think it's a good title. For the, you know, in this industry, uh, Denise, and you know with how the industry is changing, with so many books being published for indie authors, with so many books being for competition, I really think you have to have a killer title and a killer cover uh, for your books. And um, part of it is that um, I like to read something that sounds interesting too. And some of the ideas just kind of just come out of my head. <laughs> I can tell you, sometimes it just they just come up like, "What are you going to title this?" <gasps> That's what it is. You know, I kind of, I kind of go with the first the first title. Sometimes the first decision you make is probably the best one. I, you have ideas. some very intriguing titles, and there are people, there are classes on how to come up with a good title. I actually sat in a writer's <laughs> class years ago, and the importance of coming up with a good title. You does it take? Do you? I mean, does it take you a long time to come up with a title, or does this just out, boom? It just pops into your head. I have to be honest and say sometimes it just pops into my head. It'll come really? to me while I'll be writing, and it'll pop into my head. Like right now. Um, uh, I'm working on some other stuff, and I finally came with the title. It's a serial killer anthology I'll be working on next, and because I, I like dark stuff, so mm-hmm. it's a serial killer anthology I'll be working on. And uh, the title came to me during the cold snap we had here in Michigan, where we're at negative 41 degrees below zero, Ooh. and I was sitting there and it was cold, and I heard the wind blowing, and the title came to me. It was like wind chill. That's what I call the serial wow. killer. Wow. Like, oh, my gosh, and uh, I'm going to call my girl who does my covers, and I'm going to have her hook up my cover for me. And I said, boom, and it came to me like that. Just so wow. any out there, sometimes go with your first gut, because sometimes a title will come to you, and sometimes the first title is your best one. Well, interesting, very interesting. I got to tell you, I have to work, work to get my titles. That's very interesting <laughs> that um, – Generally, I do that. That comes to you like that. Now, writing, we 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 alluded a little earlier. I want to definitely for our listeners who are looking for ways to market their books to get out there. I want to touch on that. Writing yeah. and publishing is just the first step. I remember when I first started, I thought, you know, I was thinking this morning how going after a dream is a step by step by step process. And that's just the first step. It's a lot that goes into writing and publishing, especially if you're working with a nonfiction book or you're researching a lot of material for a fiction novel, then you got to do the research, you got to pull it all together, you got to write it, you got to edit it, you got to get it published, whether you do it yourself or have somebody else do it for you. Then you have to mm-hmm. sell the book. Can you tell yeah. us about four to five marketing steps or tips that you found that work for you? Um, what worked for me was um, offering the first thing, and Amazon is um, really good at doing this, so if you decide to self-publish, that may be one way you want to go. Uh, Amazon has that uh, free thing where you can offer mm-hmm. your book for free, and that's what mm-hmm. I do with Coconut Tsunami, offer it for free. 
and people like free. Even they don't read it right away, they just kind of buy it. Oh, it's free. <laughs> Looks interesting. Yes. Download. That's one way. Uh-huh. And don't don't but don't overuse free. You don't want to overuse it because you do want to make money from this. If that's your, right, if that's your right. plan of success, you want to make money. Yeah. Second thing is to uh, network with other authors because they have followings and blogs themselves. And so I was able to showcase my um, my when I first the book launched January twenty eighth. And I was able to have several authors to spotlight my book or do an author interview on their mm. blogs, and that helped build interest. The third thing would be to not to some for some things you have to pay for it, not everything, but for some things you just have to fork out some money and pay for it. And there's nothing wrong with it, but make sure you do your research. Um, yes. And see what happens. Like I'm, I'll be doing an e blast come April with a young lady I know, and she has a, a wide following. But uh, she's pretty reputable, and I trust her. And I've been talking to her for over a year before I decided to do that. And mm-hmm. the fourth thing is to build your platform as early as possible. Now, many strange women had not been published yet, but I had started building my platform about six months before it came out. It is mm-hmm. vital. That I, now, some people would say, no, you don't have to market, market after the book. I highly disagree because how do you gain followers? Because you, yeah. your book is not, if you plan to make this a career, you want to more, write more than one book, your book is not the only one you're going to be writing. Mm. You want people to follow you. And um, one lady yeah. named Kristen Lamb, she says, you want to build a, a tribe of Parker J. Cole followers. You want tribe people to follow you. So start mm. your brand in your platform, whether it's blogging, YouTube, radio show, um, podcast, start doing that at least six months, even before your book is done. So people can right. know what are you talking about. So that was the four things I would suggest. And those were four very clear, to the point, practical, anybody can take those steps, just about <laughs> steps that are, I can tell you, man, are proven, proven mm-hmm. to work, proven yeah. to work. And it does take time. You got to keep at it and keep at it, and you got to keep. Pu- a lot of times, you have to publish a book every year and just stay in front of people and stay at it on social media, going to offline book events, like you said, radio, mm-hmm. doing interviews, maybe blogging. Mm-hmm. It's just so much to just stay in front of people. So much yeah. work, so much work. Um, but that's a big part of it. Where can off-the-shelf listeners get copies of Many Strange Women, Dark Cherub, your other books? Where can they get mm-hmm. copies? Well, they're all available online at Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, and they're also available from my publishers. My Dark Cherub, is, um, the publisher is Westbow Press, and then um, Many Strange Women is Can you say that again, please? Westbow Press, W-E-S-B-O-W Press. Dot oh, okay. com. That's, okay. that's the publisher site. And then for Many Strange Women, you can get it off of Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and the publisher site, which is elexiopublishing.com, and that's E-L-E-C-T-I-O publishing.com. Okay, okay. So Barnes & Noble, Amazon.com, and then the two publishers. And do you have links to them at your website, parkerjco.com? Yes, I do. Yes, okay, okay, okay. If you're on any social uh, media networks, can you tell our listeners where they can find you online? You can find me on Facebook and on follow me on Twitter. My Facebook is um, Parker J. Cole. Just look up Parker J. Cole and you'll find me. You'll find my page on my uh, profile. I'm pretty active on Facebook. Um, my Twitter handle is at Parker J. Cole. Um, and I have a Google Plus one. Um, I forgot what it is because <laughs> I don't know on it very often. But uh, my Google Plus is author Parker J. Cole. That is okay, Google okay. Plus author Parker J. Cole. Yeah. And I can tell you if you do a search for Parker J. Cole, particularly if you put in like Parker J. Cole, comma dark chair or book author, she will also come up high in oh, the uh, search. And yeah, and the search and the search. So you can find her there. Uh, well, we want to thank Parker J. Cole again, the author of Many Strange Women, Dark Chair. She's uh, she's contributing to a, a compilation of short stories, The Coconut to Snammy, which is a prelude to Many Strange Women. And you can go out and support her. She's online, parkerjco.com, so please go and support her. We want to thank her for being here with us today. And want to thank you, off-the-shelf listeners. Please, as I, I tell you, she shared some really good book marketing tips here today. Please uh, go out and encourage your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors. Tune in to Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. As I always tell you, 
and I hope one day we all really, really grasp this. You are so incredibly remarkable and amazing. You are fabulous. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 o'clock. Parker, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.